Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend, James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we're heading. I've posted some images on our Instagram account to illustrate these discussions, which are often violent and generally quite bloody. Hello and welcome to our section on objects from history, a hundred bloody objects. I believe you've got something particularly mad for us today, Jamie. I have, Tom. Object number four, a poisoned loo roll. Boffins and the battlefield, the craziest weapons in history. Are you kidding me? It's no longer safe to take a ten-minute break on the can. Tell me about this loo roll. It was designed by SOE during the Second World War and wasn't actually deployed uh, because it was seen as something that could cause quite a bit of collateral damage. But it was a great idea. Well, it seemed a great idea at the time. And uh, it was essentially designed to kill senior Nazis and Wehrmacht officers. And I guess it gives a completely new meaning to the term wiping out the enemy. (laughs) Montezuma's revenge. (laughs) But... uh, but it leads us into our first heading, really, which is assassination weapons, because that has always drawn the the weirdest weapons of all and, and, and the weirdest boffins to try and design weapons to kill the enemy in a covert kind of way. So the Second World War was probably the best place to start. That was an assassination weapon, of course. The OSS, Office of Strategic Services, came up with a character assassination weapon called the Who Me? And that was a spray designed to spray on senior Nazis and German army officers and make them smell a shit. <laughs> and <laughs> Hitler already smelled pretty bad, didn't he, anyway? <laughs> well, he did. But this was basically to make them a laughing stock and, and make morale suffer. But again, I don't think it was deployed, but it was a great idea. And not to be confused with the Me Too weapon in which the victim counterattacks with a lawsuit several decades later. So the war was a, was a, a fertile time for extreme ideas and covert weapons to be developed. Yes, SOE had a department that designed these things. There were exploding rats, incendiary lumps of coal with explosive in, because if you left a dead rat around or a lump of coal, people would just shovel it into the furnace of a boiler or whatever, and it would just blow up the boiler. So those were sorts of things you could scatter around. And was this all sort of Churchill's idea of of, um, having a sort of hit-and-run war against the enemy? Oh, it was. And it was, he had ordered SOE to set Europe ablaze. And so it was. And, and people have always come up with these ideas. I mean, the Soviets in Afghanistan were producing children's toys with explosives in. So it, it, it's, 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 it's an old idea to, to have assassination weapons or mines or explosives, but disguised as ordinary, ordinary items, like a bog roll. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you had types of weapons and organisations that particularly favour these kind of bonkers ways of bumping people off. Well, it really depends on where you are in the world and what you need them for. I mean, everyone talks about the CIA attempts to kill Fidel Castro. But if you look at the modern world, the Americans have drones now, so they don't need 
to use those sorts of items so much. The people who are past masters at assassination, the people who have their Kaidon tip of the spear unit uh, that comes under their Caesarea organization within Mossad are the Israelis, of course, and they uh, do not shy away from taking active measures against people they see as a real threat, particularly terrorist organizations. And they've been very active over the years. They've been known to use fentanyl, uh, the synthetic opiate, which has been very useful. And they do it in a subtle way. Um, the Russians, for example, in their usual <laughs> over-the-top method, clunky fashion. their clunky fashion, um, tend to do things like pump fentanyl into a Moscow theatre siege when the Chechen terrorists took it over and, and killed over 170 people in uh, 2002. So the Israelis are much better at it than that. And so fentanyl they've used, they've used limpet mines put under cars as they're traveling along, a motorcyclist comes up and they put the limpet mine underneath and that's to kill off Iranian um, nuclear scientists and that's been extremely effective. They've had explosives in telephones, both mobile and landline. What they used to do is get into someone's house, put explosive in the handset and then ring them. And it was a simple method. When, when they asked the identity of the person picking it up and it was the person they wanted to kill, they'd send an ultrasonic signal down the phone and it would blow their head off. And they've done that with mobile phones as well. And, and is some, the use of some of these strange weapons partly to send a message? Oh, always to send a message. And it doesn't always go right. I mean, in 2010, almost two dozen of their operatives were spotted in Dubai, were filmed on camera, their passport photos were revealed to the world press. And some of those operatives were wearing really outlandish outfits and crazy wigs, and it looked a bit amateurish, but they did succeed in killing a senior Hamas official uh, who was in charge of their logistics. And this guy was given muscle relaxant and then had a pillow put over his face. So whether it was intended to look as they had been having a party, who knows? But uh, at, le at least in the eyes of the Israelis, he was killed. And there was a Mossad chief, former Mossad chief, who said, well, we live in a tough neighborhood and we have to look like the meanest kids on the block. So every few years, they will make a statement. And uh, one of their uh, opponents, one of their terrorist opponents will die. And uh, the Russians, with their slightly more agricultural methods, still favour all sorts of quite exotic poisons and things like that. Well, the Russians have always over-engineered their killings, and uh, you know, and they've always killed their opponents from the days of the Akrana, the Tsar's secret police onwards. Um, people remember Trotsky being killed with an ice pick, and the, the Russians haven't stopped. Uh, they have used all sorts of techniques. We've seen them using polonium-210 um, on Litvinenko. We've seen them using Novichok nerve agent. Um, Salisbury. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And then you know, way back, 1978, um, they advised, they obviously were involved in the Bulgarian KDS secret police killing uh, Georgi Markov with a ricin pellet fired from an umbrella. Yeah, I've, I've seen that umbrella in the um, in the Metropolitan Police uh, Museum. I don't know where it is now, but when I saw it, it was in New, New Scotland Yard. 
Yes, I don't know whether it's still there. It probably still is. But but you know, the, the Russians, as I said, often over-engineer, and sometimes they leave a trail of evidence that can be picked up. But they just shrug. They don't care. It's uh, they they can afford to lose operatives. They can afford for things to go wrong. It's not not going to stop them killing people. Uh, and let's face it, you basically have a hoodlum gangster state that's not afraid of beating opponents to death in prison or shooting them outside the Kremlin. Okay, that's assassination. Let's go on to crazy airborne weapons. And that all starts in the First World War. Yes, because flight was so recent. If you think that the first flight was 1903, so by the First World War, it, it hadn't even matured. So you got a lot of Heath Robinson aircraft. And you certainly got some very rudimentary weapon systems. There were airmen who went up in the air with blunderbusses. There was one who took an explosive anchor along, and the idea was to lure it down onto the opponent and try and blow them up. It's something straight out of magnificent men in their flying machines. And your grandfather, who was an RFC pilot, um, was cornered by some mad boffin with a with another idea. Yeah, I remember him telling us as children, he certainly didn't talk about First World War much with us, but he did talk about the mad scientists that he was given to develop. Well, in fact, I'll read a little bit from a letter that he wrote to my sister um, when she was still a teenager about those days in the RFC. By the way, this is after he just joined the RFC from fighting in uh, southwest Africa as an infantry soldier in the Rhodesian Army. We had very sketchy training in those days, and having done a total of about 12 hours flying on seven different types of aircraft, I was sent to Northolt, where the adjutant asked me if I could fly in the dark, which was an unusual accomplishment in those days. I replied I couldn't fly in daylight. Maybe it was easier in the dark. That says it all about the sort of amateur enthusiasm. But his, when you know, he was talking to some children. He said these mad scientists. They came up with amazing things. Like at one point, they came up with the idea of harpooning the zeppelin. And it was only when my grandfather pointed out that it was all very well. He was flying his sop with pup or snipe or camel or whatever it was, with his tiny horse, eighty horsepower engine, and that the zeppelin had enormous engine strapped so that he would just be dragged like a little fly to Germany, yeah. stuck on the side of the zeppelin. They don't always think it through. And the Second World War threw up some extraordinary weapon systems as well, and, and the boffins were really at their peak. And obviously Barnes Wallace came up with some fantastic stuff that, that actually worked. But all sorts of things were there. I mean, you had the bat bomb, uh, which was the Americans coming up with the idea of bats carrying incendiaries that would roost in wooden Japanese eaves and set fire to them. I think it actually, all it set fire to was the odd American dockyard. Um, there was a pigeon missile where the pigeon would have explosives on it and were trained to go for particular targets and they would peck the target and then blow up. That was another one. So there were all these strange weapons. I'd just like to say, Jamie, that no animals have been damaged in the making of this podcast. Certainly not. We wouldn't do that. (laughs) Carry on. And one of the most notorious use of of living creatures was the, the first use of biological warfare in the modern age. And that was the 1940, October 1940, attack by the Japanese on Ningbo, where they dropped bombs with wheat inside and in the wheat grains were fleas carrying bubonic plague and so there were small outbreaks of bubonic plague and that was put together by the 
absolutely appalling Unit 731 of the Japanese Defense Ministry. And they were based in Harbin. And during that time, they experimented on, vivisected, and murdered up to 10,000 prisoners of war, including uh, American prisoners of war, in their search for the ultimate biological weapon. And they were certainly experimenting with anthrax and things like that. And towards the end of the war, when things were really desperate for Japan, they even came up with an idea of a kamikaze uh, biological warfare attack on San Diego. And the idea was that one of their five massive submarines that carried seaplanes would uh, cruise off the American seaboard and send in one or more of uh, these seaplanes and crash them in San Diego and other American uh, cities carrying bubonic plague. And it never happened because the atomic bomb was dropped and, and the war ended. But that was the sort of madness that boffins and politicians were coming up with at the time. Uh, the Japanese also came up with incendiary balloons, and they actually flew thousands of them. Uh, they, they, the idea was to get them into the jet stream and then fly over America and set fire to the forest there. That was a complete failure. But again, it's what people do in desperate circumstances. Yeah. They, they search for anything. And what about um, after the war? Sec after the well, since, since the Second World War, again, there have been some extraordinary weapons that people have suggested. And again, boffins will always come up with ideas. In the 1990s, the Department of Defense in the US had to admit they were the, at least looking at something that was dubbed the gay bomb. And the idea was that uh, the US Air Force would fly over and... and basically spray the enemy with some kind of aphrodisiac that would make everyone jump on each other in the front line and that morale would collapse and that you wouldn't have an effective front line standing against you. It sounds a bit like a Tom Sharp novel to me. It certainly does. But th that, is, that is the thin line between absolute lunacy and genius. I guess. So, <laughs> since then... It really depends on where the threats lie. This is this is really what weapons are crafted for. And since then, the threat has always been seen as asymmetric, as the terrorist threat. So you look at how the US and other countries are trying to deal with that, with fast-moving or difficult targets in urban areas. And the one thing you don't want are large civilian casualties when you're trying to mount a pinpoint attack. So the US has experimented with everything from concrete bombs to bombs with lower levels of explosive or wrapped in carbon fibre to minimise the blast. But at last they've come up with something really effective, which is the R9X, the Ninja Bomb. And that's a missile fired from Predator drones. As it comes towards the target, six blades deploy and it essentially slices and dices and minces uh, the people in the car. It's sort of magimix for weapons. And it's hugely effective, and it has been used on several occasions. So sometimes the mad ideas work. Sometimes the boffins come up with something yeah. that is seriously effective. That's to avoid collateral damage, I guess. Is it? it is, yeah. it is, indeed. Uh, okay, so that's air weapons. What about ground weapons? 
over the centuries, they've ranged through so many things, including the Puckle gun in 1718, which fired square bullets and apparently fired about nine rounds a minute. Uh, why they fired square bullets, it was supposed to show the ingenuity of of British invention, I think. <laughs> and uh, and again, if you're talking about artillery, uh, there was always the the Gerald Bull story of inventing super guns. And oh, he, Big Babylon. Big Babylon, yeah, 156 metres, a metre calibre, a range of 750 kilometres. That was essentially commissioned by Saddam Hussein. And it's no surprise that Gerald Bull ended up being murdered uh, in Brussels in 1990. Um, no guesses who probably was behind that. Mm. So, so you do get all sorts of um, weapons that come along and they don't quite work or they don't catch the imagination of uh, the high command. Um, there's also been Metal Storm um, in the last few years, which is a device, it's basically a stacked uh, device, stacked ammunition device, where you get uh, hundreds of barrels, each loaded with many, many bullets. So it has a sort of purported one million rounds a minute uh, ability and rate of fire. I had a look at it online. It doesn't deserve to to succeed because it's so damn ugly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, something needs to be elegant. So some weapon systems don't fly. Um, we'll see what happens to Metal Storm. But it, it's very difficult to make a, a one-shot weapon um, that might be used as a close-in weapon system, for example, to shoot down missiles. How you make that um, compete against precision weapons um, that that are fitted to so many warships and other platforms today. Um, then you get infantry weapons. People have tried all sorts of different infantry weapons. Probably the most interesting was in the Second World War was uh, rifles, particularly the German rifles that could fire around corners. Um, they look rather strange. Uh, but you have to remember that that's the weapon you're carrying. <laughs> if you, well, you have to do a quick change. You shoot your you, friend. Well, that, that is the problem. And, uh, and again, when you look at the way weapons are going now, it's, it's the thrust is towards making it easier, providing better endurance, being able to seek out the enemy and, and the terrorist threat again. And so in the modern age, you suddenly get the, the exosuit, the idea of creating a carbon fiber exoskeleton that can carry a huge load that is powered by electric motors and hydraulics and can make the soldier travel for hundreds of miles carrying a, a massive pack and a lot of ammunition and firepower without being exhausted. So you could well end up with a really wimpy soldier inside, a bit like um, seeing a fat copper eating donuts in a squad car thinking that he's solving crime. So so there, there, there's that problem. Well, and also, I mean, I'm, they want to take people out of it because people don't want to put their life on the line. That's true. And, and when you look at the, the new technology that's coming along, particularly in robotics, whether it's sentry duty, you certainly get a lot of robot sentries now. But they're also starting to design uh, crawler robots that look like giant spiders and they will be hunting in caves for 
tomorrow's terrorists. You, you don't want to have to send men down into the Tora Bora cave complex again. It's much better to send a crawler robot that has motion and acoustic detectors, thermal images, particle analyzers to send everything from explosives to the atmosphere to adrenaline. And you just won't get away from it. I, if I if I were inside the caves, I think it would follow me just from the panic screams. So so, and you you, know, you can look these things up and see their shape, and they are absolutely terrifying. Yes. yes. So so, that is the direction that things are uh, are going. And, and do, so, do the navy get any toys to play with? Well, the navy often gets weapons that are used by other aspects of the military. Anyway, it's really the platforms that are there and and don't often change. I mean you get you get some strange things coming up. I mean during the Second World War you had the Picrete iceberg aircraft carrier concept which was part ice part wood chippings and it was to 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 produce permanent aircraft carriers that that were completely unsinkable but they never went into production and they probably would have been just appalling in terms of trying to steer or get anywhere. So that never took off. Um, the Russians actually came up with a fantastic concept they called the Akrana plan, and that was a ground effects vehicle, basically. It was half plane, half ship. It flew about four meters above the sea, uh, using the lift from its vast wings to keep it up. And it could fly at about 300 knots, carry anti-ship missiles, and it would have been a very potent threat. But basically, Russia ran out of money. Um, there was no need for it, and it disappeared. So it was just one of those post-war uh, inventions that, 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 again, never really took off. It's an insane-looking piece of kit, though. Oh, it's a fantastic-looking piece of kit. But, but uh, you know, don't be fooled by how a piece of kit looks. And the Russians have an amazing capacity to produce something that looks extraordinary, but it's just unworkable. I mean, I was in a helicopter once at the Farnborough Air Show, and their Antonov 124, massive. I mean, the world's largest transport aircraft was taking off towards us, and one of the engines caught fire. <laughs> And it's always said the reason the Russians have some of the best ejector seats, Svezda, Lightning, ejector seats in the world is because their engines are so crap. Yeah. <laughs> Mind you, they do. They are also incredibly good at building simple things that will kill Nazis all day long. I mean, whether it's the, the T-34 tank or the AK-47. Oh, yes. I mean, they produce some seriously good peasant-proof kit. And that's what you need when people are untrained. Uh, or uneducated or unskilled, but uh, you know some of their stuff really is 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 hopeless. I remember crawling over their havoc helicopter once, their their new anti tank helicopter that was supposed to be the equivalent of the Apache. And two things struck me: one is that the turret at the front that carried infrared and laser desert it couldn't even swivel, so you had to turn the whole helicopter. And the second thing I noticed was that the the cabling on the back of the helicopter was covered in hand-stitched leather. Oh, my God. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's uh, old and the new, basically, combined. So what does the future look like, Jamie? It really is difficult to tell. I mean, obviously, the infantry are going to have 
better information at their disposal. There are going to be some wacky weapons around the corner. Of course, they're going to be. Uh, you're going to get head-up displays for infantry because it's a network-centric system now. People are plugged into the information age, and you're going to get head-up displays that provide tactical data and and more info for them. Uh, you're going to get more robots on the battlefield. So keeping the men and women out of the loop is probably going to become more important, or at least if they stay in the loop, they're going to be further away from danger. And I remember when people were umming and ahhing, going, oh, it's disgraceful that Osama bin Laden was shot and he wasn't arrested. You go, well, have you ever cleared a house? And these people who said, oh, well, but he wasn't, he wasn't armed, would you think, well... Neither was Hitler when von Stauffenberg placed his briefcase bomb beneath the table at the Wolf's Lair. But I don't hear too many people complaining about that. So you're always going to get armchair strategists and armchair moralizers. Uh, okay, Jamie, what, what, whatever happened to those crazy, evil scientists of Unit 731? Well, I've always said if you're going to be on the losing side in war, either be a monster in the Gestapo or a mad scientist or evil doctor because you tend to have a get-out-of-jail-for-free card because the winners tend to want to use you after the war. And so Unit 731, these people who vivisected and murdered up to 10,000 civilians and POWs in their efforts to create biological warfare, uh, they basically did a plea bargain with Ger General MacArthur, gave him all their notes and all their research, and they got off in spite of everything. And in the same way that the Alsos mission scooped up all the Nazi nuclear scientists, we ended up with all the V2 scientists working on the space program. Uh, the Galen organization was founded using Reinhard Galen, the head of Hitler's Army Intelligence East. He, he ran the Galen organization with 4,000 appalling Nazis from the Gestapo and SS to fight the KGB and the East Germans in the post-war era. And so all these people end up re-employed and their information is used again. And all that appalling research that was done on live human guinea pigs in Dakar, for example, blood clotting agents were developed by ripping people's limbs off. Uh, there were aviation and altitude medicine developed uh, through putting people in pressure tanks or freezing them to death in freezing water. Uh, all that has been used, and so many of these people have been pardoned and recycled. And Professor Klauberg, Karl Klauberg and Auschwitz, who did those terrible experiments in sterilization and also fertility treatment, guess what? A few years after the war, he was back working in his clinic. Yeah. So crazy weapons, it's not really just a joke, is it? Not, not always. No. Although I do still think that uh, when I was a cigar merchant and uh, people always used to tell the tale about Castro and his exploding cigars, I thought, well, I was doing a job on him anyway by burning the enemy's crops. Well, if you want my favourite weapon, it has to go be 1815, when, uh, when a British cavalryman charged the enemy when the French army was routed and the order was given for the line to advance. And he charged way ahead of the British forces. And when they found him, he was dead, his sword was broken, but he had killed about a dozen Frenchmen. 
And three or four of them, he was believed to have clubbed to death with his own cavalry helmet. So if you ever ask me what's my top weapon, it would be a cavalry helmet from 1815. Well done, household cavalry at Waterloo. <laughs> at least they had someone competent after you, Tom. Mm. Thanks, Jamie. <laughs> it's a mad business, but it sounds like there'll always be crazy people inventing crazy weapons. And we must hope that they don't end up being pointed at us. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck. Thank you.